I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to start a business that solves something painful. Or we aren't. I'm actually not even sure yet. Today's pod is practice. It's exercise. It's like hopping on a Peloton, but instead of the soothing yet motivational sounds of Alex Toussaint pushing you to pedal harder, you've got me trying to help you figure out what value creation versus value capture is. You'll be better at starting startups in 20 minutes than you are now. We talk a lot about how starting a startup is just like anything else. You get better by doing it. But there are rarely any opportunities to actually do that to try and get better. People just kind of jump from alt ESVing their way through spreadsheets at Deloitte to customer interviews for an idea that they'll measure their self-worth against for the next 40 years, and there's a bit of a learning curve, so that usually doesn't go that well. So let's smooth out that curve with some practice. By the way, I'm not sure there's a better skill to practice than evaluating whether an idea is good or not. That could be an idea your boss comes to you with for a marketing push or a startup to sell turtles. Everything new starts as an idea, and most people are awful at predicting whether that idea can work. So today, we'll start with an idea in the way that lots of ideas start. Then we'll push it through a framework of questions that'll let us know the soft spots and the more sure spots. Startups will never be all green lights, and if a startup doesn't have a clear, terrifying, seemingly unpassable roadblock, then your idea probably stinks. I promise you all the easy ideas are taken, but we can still get a much clearer view of what you're working with. And if you do this a lot, you get context. Things start to jump out, so do it a lot. And to start, I've got to tell you a bit of a bummer of a story, but that's okay. Great businesses usually come from genuine pain. Problems worth solving often create a bunch of damage before they're solved. For today's story, we'll go back to November 17th, 2017. That's the day I got hit in the head. Hard. I was playing basketball in the financial district on a friend who worked at a banks team. For people unfamiliar, the corporate league made up of banks and law firms in New York City is hyper-competitive. The teams end up chock full of ringers, people who played college basketball but don't actually work at the bank. I have no clue how this started or why it continues, but it's kind of hilarious and it led to me playing a ton of basketball as a ringer on various teams, so I'm fine with it. The game I'm referring to was the first round of the corporate league playoffs. Again, something everyone involved takes way too seriously. On the first play of the game, I faked out my defender and drove to the hoop with a move that I did so much in college, coaches on the other teams used to shout out, hey, hey, he's going to do that thing where he goes right, right before I did it, which usually ended badly for me but this person hadn't played me before, so my one killer move caught him completely off guard and I soared to the basket unopposed. Or at least that's the last thing I remember. From what I'm told, a player on the other team clotheslined me from behind and knocked me clear off my feet, after which I slammed my head on the ground. The kid was kicked out of the game. I played the rest of the game, but I can't recall either. The next morning I went to a neurologist who took one look at my pupils and said, Whoa, buddy, you got one heck of a concussion there. Yikes. When I asked how long it would last, he said, well, we don't actually know all that much about these things. 
On the way out, I noticed an award on the wall given out for, quote, outstanding research in the field of concussions, and I wondered if he'd made that himself in Microsoft Paint. For those who have never been to a specialist's office in New York City, there's this thing where lots of doctors are kind of just pooled in like the first floor of a residential building, and it does not inspire confidence. My neurologist was next to a dentist, a plastic surgeon, and for some reason, a tailor. I woozily picked up my prescription for painkillers and my advice to, quote, take it easy, as some guy walked in complaining that his slacks were too short. Although, now that I think of it, maybe this was all just part of the concussion. About three months of that later, my symptoms had faded, except for one, a big one, a headache that never, ever went away. I woke up every morning like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, sitting up, realizing the headache was still there, and letting out an exhausted sigh. I joke, but the whole thing was ruthlessly discouraging. Constant brain fog for someone whose livelihood relies on clear thinking was a problem, and terrifying. The next two years consisted of me working when I could, lying in bed with a washcloth over my eyes when I couldn't, and endlessly searching for doctors that had any idea how to stop this headache until one day, my then-girlfriend and now-wife discovered a blog online called The Invisible Injury, written by an ex-hockey player from Yale. Reading her story was like looking in a mirror. She'd done everything I'd done before finding a clinic in Canada, and three months later, their first opening, I was in Canada too. That was the first step towards getting better, but the road has been long and bumpy. I'm way better than I was, but I still have chronic back and neck pain and some headaches, albeit way fewer and none anywhere near as intense as I used to have. But it's still a pain in the ass. I tell you all of this because it matters for today's pod, and I'm sorry that it's a bit of a bummer. But a ton of good has also come from my experience. And, maybe, a business. We'll see today. Which brings us to Aaron, who we'll get to after some quick, but still soothing, smooth jazz. Add today for Tacklebox, which if you have an idea and a full-time job, you should do, and you should do it at gettacklebox.com. So I guess a tiny ad. But what I really want to do is ask you for something. I need some help. The pod is growing and I'd like to support it properly. I need a podcast producer or someone who's grown a podcast in the past, and I need a freelance designer for a couple of podcasts and podcast adjacent projects. Finally, I'm looking for someone to help with some video work for Idea to Startup, production, ideation, growth, that sort of thing. If you think you might be any of these, email team at gettacklebox.com. And if you like the pod, please rate and review. That's how people find it, and it's the single best thing you can do to help us out. Back to it. Aaron is an ex-college athlete, too. After school, he went into personal training and physical therapy and just about everything else that deals with how the body works and moves and heals itself or doesn't. He's endlessly driven to figure out the best way to help people feel better. It's genuine and it's infectious. After hearing about my chronic pain and headaches, we decided to try working together over Zoom. He sees patients in person or over Zoom and they pay by the session. This is for therapy and for mobility and for strength training and generally just going from feeling bad to feeling really good. The first thing I'll say about him working with me despite me having chronic pain is that it's atypical. I saw top doctors all over the country, and in nearly every case, they refused to see me after two or three appointments, after whatever initial thing they'd told me to do hadn't worked. They then characterized me as having chronic pain, which wasn't something they worked with. Chronic pain was hard and, in most of their words, incurable. So I was sent on my way. 
The first session with Aaron started with him asking in detail about the injury. His next question was about my eyesight, something I had never in five years been asked about. Well, he said, you had a serious trauma to the right side of your head. Lots of times that'll impact vision and your eye will get in a pattern of not looking in the direction it was hurt because for a long time that would have been painful or physically not possible. This then impacts the map your brain keeps of what you can see and what you can't. So basically, lots of people end up with gaps in their vision that they don't notice because their brain just adapts to not having the full field. The problem with this, though, is that your body then can't register threats from that area and it knows that, so it stays tense. It's like you're always in fight or flight. You need to teach your eye and brain to map that area again so that the nerves can calm down and then your muscles can relax. It seemed a bit wild, but we tried it. Touch your toes, he said to me over Zoom. I went down and got maybe five inches from the ground with my fingers about on my shins. Okay, remember how far you got. Now grab a golf ball. I had one handy as he'd prep me on what we'd do before the session. I proceeded to put my arm out straight, holding the ball and focusing on a dot we'd drawn on it. I then tried to follow that dot, just using my eyes and not moving my head as I moved my arm in a big arc in front of me. As the golf ball got to the upper right quadrant of my vision field, everything went blurry and hurt. Yep, your eye is jumping. It can't see there, Aaron said. I couldn't believe it. My right eye literally couldn't see anything in what very obviously should have been my field of vision. We spent five minutes slowly moving the golf ball back and forth, increasing my range by tracing and retracing the area and getting my eye to focus on the dot. It was hard, but eventually I could more or less do it. We stopped. And Aaron said, now, touch your toes. I bent over and my hands lay almost flat on the floor. I bent easily eight to 10 inches further than I had pre-eye exercise. Yep, he said, totally unsurprised. Your nerves relax because your brain could map that area. Nerves relax, muscles relax. How's your head? It was pain-free. He continued, it takes about 20 to 40 hours of eye work to get your brain to really remap the area you've lost and for your nerves and muscles to calm down for good. We then moved on to a few more eye exercises and joint mobility, starting with ankles, which he said would, quote, really impact upper trap stuff, which would lead to head pain. Whoa. The next day, I went for a run. Usually when I run, I have a sore Achilles and my head hurts from my feet pounding on the ground. I'm just used to both. But midway through the run, I had neither. How is it that no one knows about this? How does no one do this? I asked in our next session. This feels like it can be really, really helpful to people with chronic pain. Yeah, Aaron replied matter-of-factly. I get great results. This all brings us to the question I know you've got in your head because I've definitely got it in mine. Is this just an alternative therapy path, or is there a scalable business worth pursuing that can be anchored by this treatment? What are we working with here? Well, let's see. When an idea pops across my desk, there are three sets of questions I like to ask to figure out where we're at, to take the temperature of the idea a bit. I think about these in three levels and I map it all out in Miro, a tool that I love that allows you to create and work on a massive space digitally. I'll pop it in the show notes. The first is the highest level, three questions to make sure we're not completely out in left field. The second level focuses on customer. Do we actually know who this person is and what they do to solve the problem now? The third is product and business model. Can we build something that makes sense for the type of business we want to build? Once I've answered the questions on all three levels, I have a pretty good sense of what this idea is about. 
None of these levels is there to tell us an idea can't work. They're simply there to show us what we know and what we don't. And if you do this with a lot of ideas or iterations on the same idea, it'll start to become obvious which are more worth your time or less. Always start at the top of the pyramid, and once you feel comfortable with your answers, move down a level. The first level is made up of what we call the three whys. Why you, why now, why at all. We'll start with why you. When you think about you, think Venn diagram. I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again until the day I die. You are a bunch of circles. Those circles are your skills, your network, your experience. Those circles are bigger or smaller based on how unique and exceptional those skills, network, or experiences are. Your startup idea is most likely to work if you combine your biggest circles. If you're in finance, even if you're really good at finance, lots of people are in finance, that circle is inevitably small. If, however, you spent the past 10 years working in water rights law in Colorado, something only a handful of people have done, your circle for water rights law is huge and your insights into the space, problems, and potential solutions will likely be novel. Add in that most lawyers won't leave their job to start a business because opportunity cost for lawyers is huge, both the salary and the years spent in school and possibly the loans, and you're probably the only person with the perspective you have willing to start a business. We don't want competition. We want stuff only we can do. In this case, the why me is a combination. First, no one knows the chronic pain customer, specifically the chronic head and neck pain customer, better than me. I know how we feel. I know what we do to solve the problem. I know the shortcomings of the US medical system, the alternative medical system, and even some systems abroad. I've tried more than just about any other chronic pain patient on the planet. And when that circle is combined with Aaron, someone who treats these patients in a potentially novel way, the why me starts to look pretty good. Next, why now? More pointedly, why not five years ago? As I've mentioned, capitalism is efficient as hell. If something could have existed, it would have. So what's different now that makes your idea possible in 2022 or whenever you listen to this when it wasn't in 2017? This answer for me is a bit shakier, but I'll go with the proliferation of digital care. Telehealth, Zoom plus YouTube plus apps plus accountability seems like a suite of products that could lead to a killer solution. Finally, why at all? Why does this problem need to be solved? Another easy one. Chronic pain is a menace. I met people with chronic pain far worse than mine and it wears you down like water wearing down a rock. People with chronic pain fold in on themselves, subconsciously trying to move further away from the source of all the discomfort. If it can be treated, it needs to be. Also, it's a massive quantifiable problem. It's a $150 plus billion market and growing. Anecdotally, the majority of practitioners I met said a huge portion of their chronic pain patients were head and neck. So first three questions for this idea, which again doesn't really have a product yet, and that's okay, it's actually better. First blush, it all looks pretty good. Let's move on to level two. These questions are about customer, and they are significantly harder, and they usually require some immediate work, which luckily isn't all that hard and you need to do anyway. They're also what most people skip. so. Again, do them, practice them, get good at them. They'll be the difference. You might think they won't be, but I promise you they will be. First question, who's it for and who's it not for? Second, what will it help them do? Third, what's a great outcome look like? And finally, where can you find them and just them? The big thing to remember about these is that they're choices. You get to pick who you target. 
And more importantly, you get to pick who you leave out. When I'm thinking about customers to start with, I always begin with people who have a specific problem I know more about than anyone else. A specific type of person that's gone through a specific path to solve the problem I'll solve. A group that current solutions don't work for. This keeps the group tight. So here's a first stab at this. Who would this be for and who would it not be for? People who have tried tons of things to cure headaches stemming from an injury that caused chronic head and neck pain. People who have had some success, maybe their pain is diminished by 80%, but they need help getting across that finish line. People who have already used telehealth or Zoom appointments. Who would this not be for? Informally, everyone who doesn't fall into that previous category. I don't want people who haven't been able to make any progress on their own because they likely won't be disciplined enough to make progress with us. It also shows they haven't tried enough new things, which means by nature, they'll be harder to rope into trying another new thing. We're vetting for motivation here. And yes, this limits the places you solve the problem. You don't solve for everyone. You leave lots of people who have pain that you could theoretically help in pain. And you've got to be okay with that. The only way you'll get to them is by focusing on the people first who give you the best chance of success. The key to the first step is vetting, stacking the deck. The best that you can offer matched up with the people best positioned to take that offering and run with it. This will catalyze growth that will eventually get you to the person who had the pain that you couldn't help initially. Next, what will it help them do? This is the promise the customer is begging you to keep. The one or two sentence promise that's specific to that customer you've chosen. So yes, however we deploy Aaron's expertise will help them get better. But more specifically, for this customer, what's the promise? Maybe something like, we'll help you kick chronic pain for good. Or more specifically to their process, something like, you've done occipital nerve blocks and PT and acupuncture and body work and chiropractor and breath work and meditation and yoga and Pilates, and you're close to kicking your chronic pain. We'll end it for good. The promise we're making is that last mile. This isn't the first thing you do. It's not even the second or third or fifth. It's the last, and it only comes after you've done a bunch of other things. The key with the promise is that the friend of someone who has the problem would recognize it and know how to tell their friend about it. If my friend had chronic pain and someone was an acupuncturist, I wouldn't know what to do with that. But if the acupuncturist said that they specialized in people that had tried everything for X pain and I'd know my friend had, I'd recommend it. A good promise lets people help each other out with solutions to hard problems. The third question is an outcome, or as we've previously described, job to be done. What are the people truly hiring you to do? In this case, I do think I know it. It's stamp out that last bit of pain. For lots of other startups, this part is far trickier and far more customer dependent. Don't skip through it. It's nuanced. The final question is on acquisition channels. Basically, do you know enough about this customer to find them? And I do. I know the chronic pain forums they're in. I know they eventually find their way to the invisible injury into MMTA in Canada, or at least hearing about it. I know they're at yoga and chiropractors and acupuncturists. Whether I can wrangle them up from there is a different story, but at least I've got a beat on where they are. You need to know where your customer is, and that can't just be Facebook and Instagram ads. Those are too expensive. These are unique niche channels. And that is level two, who they are, what they need, where you can find them. Level three comes after you've sketched out level two, and it has to because it's going to be a reflection of level two. 
It's all about product and business model for the customer you've chosen. Based on the first two levels, what should you build and how will you make money from it? And at the end of the day, does it make sense? There are three questions here and they are, where is value created? What's the best way to capture that value? And finally, what will you build? Value creation and capture can seem tricky, but they're relatively straightforward. Value is created in this scenario in two ways. When we teach the new technique and when they benefit from practicing it consistently over an estimated 20 to 40 hours. Value is captured when they pay for the service. Marrying the value you create and the value you capture is critical. Here is an example, maybe my favorite example. Netflix creates value through the content they produce. They spend tens of billions of dollars a year on this content. They capture value through monthly subscriptions and targeted ads. The ads are decently targeted, but you can't really learn that much about someone by knowing they like Ted Lasso and Is It Cake, which, side note, is a preposterously fun show to watch, and I don't know why. On the other hand, creates value through the videos on the app. But those are created by users. They spend exactly zero dollars on value creation. They capture value through highly targeted ads that are played in between these short videos. They show more ads than Netflix. The ads are highly targeted because the videos are far more niche and people are on their phones so the ads are more likely to be clicked. Netflix versus TikTok is an absolute bloodbath when you look at value creation versus value capture models. And it's why TikTok will be more valuable than Netflix by the end of the year and that has been Prediction Brian. For you, the mode of value creation and value capture are critical, but they need to match up with everything above on the pyramid and with the expectations and current habits of your customer. Aaron's current model of one-on-one -on -one practice works, but it doesn't scale. There are a bunch of potential approaches that might, keeping in mind the tech advances that make the idea interesting in the first place. One model is the transcendental meditation model. It's a week-long intensive at a very high price, something like 2,500 bucks, then you're on your own to practice. That's it. One price and done. I'm skeptical of this one, both in creation and capture. It leans heavily on growth, particularly word of mouth growth and acquisition channels, which tend to be really tough for entrepreneurs. Another model is recorded training videos that subscribers get access to for 15, 25, 100 bucks, whatever it is each month. That can be supplemented with specific live workshops, either free or paid a la carte. This gets more interesting to me, especially if this is a behavior your customer already engages in. For example, I subscribe to Foundation Training for $15 a month, and I get access to a huge library of their workouts. I've been a subscriber for a year or two, and I will be a subscriber for the foreseeable future. Another model is the more traditional teach practitioners and charge them for the certification model. Yet another is accountability-driven. Release videos to groups of customers who practice together a few times a week. The best solution will be pulled directly from how your customer gets treatment now. For me, I have a block of time each day dedicated to work on my neck and back. I also have a few people who I've met through this process who are in similar situations and we check up on each other's progress through WhatsApp. I also have an Excel doc that tracks how I feel and whether or not I worked out each day. Marrying something like this with a clear goal of 20 to 40 hours could work. My instincts tell me something about getting groups together, but I'd want to test. This section is weak. Overall, here's what we're looking at. Level one is rock solid, the whys are there. Level two is decent. I think there's a customer like me, I think I can reach them, 
I know that if they exist, they'll be willing to try something new, and I think I know what to promise them to get them to convert. Level three is not great. All of the product models are underwhelming for me. Keep in mind I spent all of five minutes thinking about them, but nothing is jumping out that allows us to create value and capture it in a way consistent with how this customer wants care. If you have ideas, email me. So what I would do is test. The idea is definitely worth testing. I'd test the customer piece first. Then I'd work with the customer, do a ton of ethnographical research, watching them work out, watching them find practitioners. Then I'd figure out how to deliver the solution properly. Maybe there's something here I'm not seeing. There is certainly people willing to try new things, which is more than you can say for most startup ideas. Evaluate the three levels. First, how uniquely positioned you are for the idea and at a high level, whether or not the fundamentals are sound. Second, how well do you know an initial customer segment and what's left to learn? And finally, where does the value get created and captured and how could you build a product that makes sense for the customer and as a business for you? Then test, start with the customer stuff, pull the product from the customer, do it for lots of ideas, see how they all stack up and do it a lot. Then build what makes sense and have a great week. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll polish your idea, figure out your customer, and get building immediately. If you apply today, we could be working on it by Sunday.